Hello there, and welcome to Preprints in Motion, a podcast taking a deep dive in the fast-paced world of preprints. Join us as we sit down with early career researchers, discuss their latest preprint, and find out about their journey through the muddy marshes of academia. Hit that subscribe button, leave a rating, and find us on Twitter at MotionPod. Support us by heading over to buymeacoffee.com slash preprints. But for now, let's get into the show. So this is our first ever live version of the podcast, um, which is going to definitely be a bit of a look behind the scenes because it's a mess behind the scenes. Um, and we do a lot of edit. Well, we do minimal editing generally, but it's always me that gets edited out because I say things I shouldn't and I take ages to think of questions. But we're going to start where we always start, which is the guests introducing themselves, because I quite like to hear how everyone introduces themselves. Everyone does it a bit differently and focuses on different things. So tell us who you are and what you're about. Thanks, Johnny. I'm Stefano Bertalzi. Most people call me Steph. I'm on the faculty at UC Berkeley in the School of Public Health in the Division of Health Policy and Management. I'm a physician health economist, and I've worked on various things. A lot of my Early years were working on HIV in Africa, and then I moved to Mexico, spent 11 years there, continued to work on HIV, but also worked on the impact of large health and social programs. I moved to the Gates Foundation and ran the HIV program and for a while the TB program. And then I came to Berkeley 10 years ago now, and I've been here since then. And I'm uh, interested in broadly in infectious diseases and uh, at the start of the COVID pandemic, I was invited by the MIT Press to edit a new overlay journal. I'd never heard of an overlay journal. I didn't know what that meant when they called me. And I learned that an overlay journal re- um, publishes reviews of manuscripts that are in the public domain on preprint servers in our case. And so that's what we do. Um, we started off focusing just on COVID. And then after a couple of years, we decided to broaden our remit, and now we broadly focus on infectious diseases. From the very beginning, we did it in a very multi and interdisciplinary way, in the sense that we were looking at COVID preprints, whether they were from the social sciences, even the humanities, um, biological sciences, medical sciences, engineering, mathematical modeling, you name it. So. We were, we're, we limit ourselves to infectious diseases, but we take a very broad approach in terms of what we consider to be um, disciplinary approaches that relate to infectious diseases. So it's a little bit about me. <laughs> um, so through, through ASAP Bio, I get to meet a lot of really cool people who I've wanted to meet for a long time. And they've all got like these amazing career backstories to them. And you all very much haven't, you said that was a few things you've done, but you, your career backstory is just, amazing all the different places you seem to have ended up um but we're not we're not here to talk about that um so could you just give us a little bit of an overview as to the process of how reviews work with rapid reviews i think what's most different about us compared to other organizations that review preprints is that we don't start with the author we um, have teams of students in different domains. So we cluster ourselves. I mentioned that we're very multidisciplinary. So we have students who focus on 
public health, on social sciences, on medical sciences, on biological and chemical sciences, and on engineering science and physical sciences. And so we have students who are kind of in all of those areas. And every week they look at what is coming out on the preprint servers related to infectious diseases and identify preprints that they think are interesting and that we might want to review. The, they then get together at the beginning of every week in kind of domain-specific meetings with um, more senior students and some volunteer faculty who help, and they pitch uh, the manuscripts that they think we should consider reviewing. And then each of the domains prioritizes within the preprints that they've had pitched which ones they want to bring to our editorial meeting on Friday. And on Fridays, we I just walked out early, actually, to speak with you. Um, but uh, we have our, our weekly editorial meeting and all of the do domains come and they pitch to us what they think are their most interesting preprints that should be um, reviewed. And then we start a review, a peer review identification process, which is similar to, I think, most journals. What's different is that because we're so inter and multidisciplinary, we don't rely on my network or even the network of other faculty collaborators. We identify peer reviewers through the process of identifying nearest neighbor papers. So published manuscripts that we think are typically methodologically close to the manuscript of interest. We look at the authors of those papers, and then we look at the other manuscripts or the other publications that those authors have to identify people who have, uh, who are both um, sufficiently published that they are um, that they are credible peers and um, from a both methodological perspective and potentially from a topical perspective, close enough to the manuscript of interest that they would make um, appropriate peer reviewers for that manuscript. And then obviously we go through all the normal process that any journal does of inviting peer reviewers and then reminding peer reviewers and then reminding them again. And finally, um, uh, reviewing the quality of their review and then publishing it on the on the site. We um our first COVID work actually got picked for rapid reviews COVID nineteen, um and we so at the time <laughs> it was a big bit of work at the time, and as a result of the reviews we got through you guys, we actually split that into two separate papers, which was oh. definitely needed and was I mean it was great for me because I got two papers out. But yeah, and it was a really great, lovely experience. And I, I love that you use students to actually pick out these things because, I mean, that's kind of, I guess, is a slightly similar to pre-light and that pre-lights, it's a lot of students and postdocs who tend to write those. But it kind of shows you just how cool preprints are for experimenting with the whole system because you would never find a journal doing that right. I mean, a journal probably wouldn't be able to do that, wouldn't have access to the students. Yeah, I mean, the, the difference is that we inform the authors that we're going to be reviewing their paper. We give them an opportunity to uh, wave us away from any peer reviewers that they think would have a conflict of interest or that shouldn't review their paper. We give them the opportunity to suggest peer reviewers if they want to. Um, and we'll take that into consideration. But um, very rarely we have authors that that um, are very unhappy that we are choosing to review their their manuscript. And there we sort of politely say that, um, well, you've put your manuscript in the public domain and we weren't act actually asking permission. We were trying to be courteous. Um, but in most cases, you know, 
organizations that review preprints are typically doing it because the author has submitted the preprint for review. So for example, something like Review Commons, an author will submit the preprint for review, Review Commons will do the review with the idea that they will then channel into the Review Commons affiliated journals. And so we are in discussions with Review Commons and with other organizations because we would like to give the authors of the papers that we review the opportunity once we review their, their manuscript of shuttling it to Review Commons or somewhere else um, and increasing the probability that our reviews will help to accelerate the process to publication, right? Because it, they can potentially reduce the number of reviews that a journal will require. Um, and also, you know, what's different about, or what I tell our reviewers, what's different about the review that they're doing for us versus the review they might do for Cell is that Cell is asking the question, what would this manuscript need to be publishable by Cell, right? And typically that will, I mean, often that will involve being told by the reviewers that you should do this experiment or that experiment. And if you did that and the results were such and such, then it would be a cell paper, right? We're asking the reviewer to tell us whether they believe that in its current state, the results and the conclusions that the authors draw are substantiated by the data and the analyses that they've done in the current version of the paper. But if cell wanted to use our review as, um, you know, partial information, they could go back to the reviewer and say, would you be willing to do that additional step for us? Now, some of our reviewers go ahead and do that additional step spontaneously and wonderful, uh, we like that. But um, because we're trying to quickly get these reviews out, we ask them to do a little bit less work than they would have to do. The other thing is that the paper could go lots of places and they obviously could only do it in the generic for us. They couldn't say what the paper needs for sell, as opposed to what it needs for, for um, some other publication, for eLife, uh, if you know, the reviewer felt that those standards or, or the requirements for that readership were different. I think that, so my experience again, but the reviews we got from our reviews at the time, I think was the, the better reviews than we got from the journal. And I, I, I spoke about, the journal was great, went to Floss Biology, great experience then, but, the reviews we got from our reviews were, they were much more focused, it felt like they were much more focused on the actual content of the preprint. And it, I guess that's because you are, you're not part of a journal system, right? So you, you focus a lot more on what's actually written in the methods and the things that peer reviews kind of supposed to focus on rather than where the impact is classed as. Yeah, I mean, obviously we think about impact in terms of what we choose to review. Um, because we we have a limited capacity to review. And so we wanna make sure, I mean, it's actually a, a really interesting question because when we, were when we were created by MIT, there was as much interest in debunking bad science that was on peer review, that was on preprint servers as there was validating good science. And, and we have done some debunking of bad science, but typically we only do that for things that are getting attention, mm -hmm. right? There's no reason to raise the profile of bad science that is being ignored. But if Fox News is championing the results of a study that we believe is likely to not be good science, then we are interested in getting, you know, very well-respected peer reviewers to say so. Uh, turns out um, journalists don't ever have to do that. They never <laughs> review things that they think is, you know, they won't send out for review something they think is bad science. So it turns out you need to do a different kind of arm twisting of your peer reviewers to get them to review something that is bad. 
And um, and so it and oftentimes when you when we choose to do that, we want very respectable people to do that. <laughs> so it takes a little bit more arm twisting. Uh, but I think it's an important function in sort of, you know, public science um, to be able to say something up especially if something is getting attention and being acted on, whether people are making therapeutic decisions on the basis of it or public health decisions on the basis of it, and they shouldn't be, that's an important feedback, right? And for that just to occur, because over the next two years, it never gets published in a reputable journal. That's a very indirect and slow way of um, not validating something. And I mean, we're doing this for peer review week, so my next comment isn't quite in fitting with review week but i i'm of the opinion that we don't actually need anywhere near as much peer review as we have i don't think every paper ever made needs to be peer reviewed and i think what we should be doing instead is saving all that capacity we have and focusing more on kind of what you've just said in that those articles that are either directly relevant to human health and are being used in clinics or to direct policy changes or for the bad science and the science that's getting a lot of traction actually needs debunking that is where peer review is probably the most powerful because they're the kind of things where it's so easy, right? It takes a sentence, right? To get a myth out there. And it takes an army to bring that myth down and break it apart again. And even then it's, I mean, we've still got all of them still at last, right? It doesn't matter how old the myth is, it's still around. And it'd be great to see a lot more of that. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And it's, um, it's a really interesting aspect to what we choose to review because there's a big difference between a journal choosing to publish something because they think it should be a version of record, it should be out there and it should have the credibility associated with it. And, and probably from a journalist perspective, whether it will be cited and therefore will enhance their, their um, citation count. In our case, one of the important things that I take into account is how much value add will review do for this paper? Right. And so for the first time, I was asked not a few months ago to review a paper for a well-known journal. And I wrote back to the editor and I said, you know, a review will add nothing to this paper other than commenting on how well written it is. But you don't need me to comment on how well written it is. You've got in-house copy editors that can do that. There's no way for me to judge the quality of the science because um, you know the kind of science that they've done, which was in this case, a review of documents that the WHO gave them access to. There's no way for me to know whether they actually reviewed all the documents they should have reviewed because there's no way to know what the entire feasible set was. They got 40 out of 44 countries, so that was great. Um, you know, there's nothing for somebody like me to add. I could, you know, I could write an editorial about it, but a peer review is not actually what that paper needed. Mm -hmm because it was sort of self-evidently, and the same thing goes, so we never review clinical case reports, for example. But that doesn't mean clinical case reports aren't important to have documented. Luckily, they're on the preprint server and people can see them and access them. But I, you know, we can't review it and have a value add saying, oh, I think that it wasn't really true what the person observed in their patient or whatever. You know, it just, and similarly, you can go to the opposite end of the spectrum. So that sometimes I'll say, listen, this is a manuscript which is the result of a phase three clinical trial that went through umpteen levels of review at the FDA and the EMA 
and the likelihood that the methods were inappropriately chosen to determine the effect, the, the efficacy of this particular medication is extremely unlikely. And even if it is, it won't be apparent <laughs> in the manuscript, right? Because if mistakes were made, they won't be explained in the methods in the paper. So sometimes I say, the likelihood that a reviewer is going to say that we shouldn't believe these results is so low that, you know, let the journal publish it. They'll have to get their reviewers, but it's maybe not where our value add is greatest. Um, and there I take, you know, I, I had a professor many years ago in, in clinical medicine who was pushing us to be thoughtful about when we ordered a diagnostic test. And he pointed out that the most valuable diagnostic test is when you're flip of a coin, you have no idea whether it's A or B. If you're almost certain it's A and you're getting a diagnostic test and that confirms that it's A, the diagnostic test probably won't have changed what you would have done. And the similar, the same thing is true if you're almost certain that the patient doesn't have that, right? The diagnostic test is most likely to change what you do when you're most uncertain about the result of that test. And in some ways, that's the sweet spot for public peer review is where the world out there, even fellow scientists, don't know what to make of a paper because they don't have the expertise to judge whether it's appropriate or not. And that's where um, I think public peer review is most valuable. But that's an interesting thing because that doesn't necessarily correlate with the most which papers are most impactful. Mm -hmm. And so it's a combination of those things that, that we take into account. That leads me quite nicely on to talking about how you kind of summarize these things up. So People are probably quite familiar with eLife now who have their model that's very word-based on how they sum up a paper. They've got a certain terminology they use. You guys have this evidence scale key that you use. Could you talk a little bit about that and wh why, why you do that? What, 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 where was that decision? Well, we wanted to have um, a sort of summary scan measure that people could look at and also force reviewers. You know, sometimes reviewers will provide very detailed, extensive comments on something, but it's because they're trying really hard to be helpful, not because they're saying that this isn't a good, this isn't, you shouldn't believe the results of this paper, right? And it can be hard if, if they don't actually pronounce themselves um, to know what they think of the quality of the paper and whether the results and the conclusions are justified. And so we wanted the, to force that mechanism. Now, if it's a journal review that gets forced because of the recommendation that the reviewer makes to the journal about whether the journal should publish the paper or not, right? That's, to, you know, publish it as is, publish it with minor revisions, publish it with major revisions or reject it. That's in some ways um, forcing a forcing mechanism that gets a reviewer to say what they think um, of a paper. We don't want to ask them that question, but we want to ask them the question, should we believe this paper, right? And that's the scale that we're asking them to do, which is different from should eLife publish this paper, or should Cell publish this paper? That's a different question, right? And I think that um, our question for the purposes of the, the rest of the community, the scientific community, the, the policy community, the clin clinical community, the question we're asking them to answer is actually the more important question. Right. It's whether you believe it or not, not, not how prestigious the journal is that chooses to publish it. Yeah. Do you ever get authors complain about what they've been given on that scale? I've, um, no. Um, the complaints 
that have the mo been the most vocal have been from authors who felt that by having us review their paper, it might um, bias a journal um, and cause them to have to respond to the concerns that we raised in addition to whatever concerns the reviewers for the journal raised. And they wanted to sort of, you know, toss the dice and hope they got easy reviewers from the journal without having to worry about whether um, uh, the journal also wants them to respond to the concerns from our reviewers. I think that's the, the, I think some review, some authors are concerned that we might make work for them. Yes. I think much more commonly is the response that you had, which is that we're actually helpful to them. We're helpful to them because it might reduce the speed, the, or, I'm sorry, reduce the time that a journal will take to review their paper, but more importantly, that they can make some modifications to their, their preprint and increase the likelihood of it being accepted by a journal. Yeah, we, I mean, all for us, it was extremely helpful in the ch changes we made. And we made those changes before we submitted to the journal. So we already know, submitted a revised version. Some people preprint after they submit to a journal. Yeah. In fact, some people preprint late in the process when they have even gotten an acceptance. They just want to make sure that they have a publicly available version of their manuscript. So, so. I wish we we knew that. For Research Square, we we know that. We know what where it is in the process. But for something on BioArchive, MedArchive, SSRN, we have no idea whether they're advanced or not. And we give the authors, you know, sometimes an author will respond saying that um, they've got to revise and resubmit from a journal and this is well advanced and the likelihood that we will add value by providing reviews at that point is low and, you know, frankly, we'll, we'll um, take that into consideration. Do you have data on where the preprints you review actually end up? We have the data, but I don't have the data in front of me <laughs> to be able to answer your question. Um, I'm, uh, um, I, you know, I think that there's a high likelihood that the preprints that we're interested in will also be of interest to journals. Mm -hmm. And I'm a little bit worried about that. I, I sort of kind of wish that we were also able to provide peer reviews of things that are important, but will never end up as published. Um, so we don't actually look for that, but for example, um, you can imagine a situation where somebody publishes a preprint that is complete enough to be reviewed and important, but they're not gonna publish that version. They're gonna do the three more experiments before they publish their definitive paper but they think it's important to share the results that they have from the first half. So if they do that in a way where they're not just sharing a few results, but without enough methods to make it reviewable, then I think that's a real sweet spot for us that we could be looking for. Sort of, what do you make of this, even though it's not the version of record? The problem is that what we see more often is that somebody throws out tantalizing early results, but without enough methods to be able to review the paper. But it's sort of like, wow, look at these results. You you all should be aware of this and we'll get to publishing when we can, but we're still you know, validating or whatever. And there, we don't have value add. I mean, you know, if, if I was a newsletter, I might say, hey, look at this, this is cool. But I can't say you should believe it because I don't have enough information to be able to review it. Yeah, I mean, we've got a project at the moment that's trying to identify those early preprints. And they're just really difficult to find and actually properly identify. Yeah. 
Our yeah. archive need to add a little box that authors can tick to say it's early. That'd make life so much easier for us all. Yeah. Um, so, peer review week, so let's come back to peer reviewers. Um, what does your peer review pool of reviewers look like compared to, say, a more traditional journal? I think we're probably much more global um, because, as I mentioned earlier, we don't work on a network of connections. So it really depends on our peer reviewers are are almost well, they're extremely rarely affiliated with a private company. Almost never. I mean, I always say I can imagine exceptions to that, but they rarely occur. <laughs> so they're almost always either um, faculty at a university or in a research institute or in something like the CDC or a, a, a you know a government organization that does science. So, but essentially a, a nonprofit making respected scientific institution, most of the time universities. And we will invite postdocs, provided that they have a sufficient body of published work and, um, and faculty and research scientists and other sorts of folks. But basically people who are postdoc or above, we won't um, invite medical students. We will uh, also invite, for example, clinical fellows, but not medical residents. So that's kind of our threshold. And Many journals do that. Some journals actually will even occasionally have grad, you know, doctoral student reviewers, um, especially if it's passed off to a doctoral student by a faculty member or something. But just in general, that's what, what we do in terms of reviewing. We strongly encourage our reviewers to collaborate with students or others on their reviews. And in fact, we are experimenting with having our graduate students write graduate student reviews, share them with our potential faculty peer reviewers and encourage them if they're interested to co-author a peer review with our own, by our own, I don't necessarily mean at Berkeley, I mean, wherever graduate students are who are working with us, um, but sort of doing some matchmaking between the peer reviewers we invite and the graduate students. But we certainly strongly encourage them to work with their own graduate students and to co-author so that the student gets credit. Because of course, what's you know, the advantage of reviewing with us as opposed to reviewing for most journals is that the review ends up as a published object. It has a DOI, it's citable, and, you know, we hope in the future will be, you know, contribute to their CV and be considered in promotions, other things. So it's, it's evidence of scientific um, productivity. And because it's public, you know, I don't know how the quality compares because I don't have the insight into the comparable journals. But um, there is um, at least a certain incentive of you wouldn't want to submit a peer review that you wouldn't want the public to see um, if that's the way peer review is being done. Now, we do give peer reviewers the opportunity to publish anonymously, and it will still has to still pass our quality filter to do that. It's very rare for people to ask for that. Um, some people feel very strongly about it, that they are unable to provide um, constructively critical feedback if they have to reveal who they are. When they do re re request that, I ask for an explanation because I want to make sure that it's not because they're somehow um, have some conflict of interest with the authors, right? That it really is just a, an issue of principle. And I've had, you know, one reviewer from the NIH say that for them it was matter of principle, they would never review in, a, in an open way. Um, 
but so you know that gives you a sense of who our reviewers are um and where they come from we don't have a peer review list we for every single preprint we go through the nearest neighbor papers and and uh, out to folks um, we do keep track of who we've asked recently and not bother people too much and uh and we certainly you know like it when somebody is willing to review for us more than once and uh but we don't we don't look at our own list and then try to fish from that list it is or well, it would be great to start seeing more credit given for peer reviews because it, it's not a small amount of work when people do them and it is a we we, we do it for this sort of benefit of science but it's a really nice thing to actually sit and write down and sort of not you're not attacking someone's work you're making it better and you're contributing to that work and having a peer review report you actually cite and point to is a really nice way of giving people credit for that contribution to that bit of work well and frankly it would be awfully nice if um authors were able to put peer reviewers into acknowledgments of the final versions of their papers when they provide important um support to the improving the quality of the paper so i think that you know, to the extent that efforts like ours, and obviously there are quite a few others, are contributing to a constructive criticism environment where we actually welcome, as opposed to, you know, oh, God, the review that we got from such and such a journal. Now, I have to say I'm jealous of eLife because eLife goes one step further and we're not able to do that yet. I, I, I aspire. <laughs> and but what I mean by that is that to get reviews and then reconcile the reviews, you know, have the reviewers communicate with each other and discuss their different points of view about a paper. I think that's an even richer uh, approach. And, um, you know, we, I think we, we aspire to get there someday, but for now uh, we're, we're busy still building. Um, now, the other thing that I just want to mention is that um, we are very grateful that we just received funding from the Gates Foundation um to continue our work and very importantly what that funding does is it enables us to build partnerships with 12 universities in low and middle income countries um, to work with their students and their faculty to help source additional numbers of preprints to identify more peer reviewers and to con con create this kind of dispersed but but also unitary um uh enterprise which helps to do capacity building of students on a much broader scale. And I'm really excited about that. We're, um, today we had our first participation in our editorial meeting of the faculty member who's gonna be mentoring students at the University of Rwanda. And we're in discussions with a bunch of other places, but um, uh, for me, that's it's really exciting that we're um, globalizing our, our, not only where we were looking for manuscripts, but who's looking for manuscripts, um, which is very cool. And I think it will also help us to be globally sourcing our peer reviewers. Um, and you'll be finding more globally sourced preprints, right? Presumably absolutely. you'll be finding all the preprints in the current system that get ignored just because they're not published from you know, the US or the UK, which is that's yeah. what we should all be doing. Yay to and I often remind the students when they're pitching that, um, I don't want to hear about how fancy the university is where the author works, <laughs> right? I want I want them to pitch the preprint based on what's in the manuscript and not whether they're at Harvard or whatever. Um, and and it's difficult because you know even some of the most junior students, you know, you're 
blinded by the prestige and uh it's it's just so deeply embedded in the system that the whole thing about where you go to university like when people so something i hate and this is why i get guests to introduce themselves um so back when i used to sit in seminars i, don't, I thankfully don't have to do that anymore but the thing i always hate the most was right at the start of a seminar when someone in the audience would get up and they'd introduce the speaker and it would be this where I used to work, it was a very long introduction, but it would just be this list of this person worked in this person's lab at this university. Then they went to this person's lab in this other university. And it was just, it's like just name dropping. It's like a celebrity going down the red carpet and going, oh, well, I just worked with all these other really famous people. And I, I hated it so much. And that I hated it that much. I often wouldn't pay attention to the rest of the seminar because I was still just angry about what I just listened to. Yeah. Well, Johnny, unfortunately, I have to go because I um, have to go teach in half an hour and I've got to get to campus. So it's been great talking with you. And um, I hope that uh, the people are getting a lot out of uh, pre-review week. Thank you so much. Thanks for the work that you folks do. And that's the show, folks. If you enjoyed listening, then hit that subscribe button to get the latest updates straight to wherever it is you're listening. Don't forget to rate us on Spotify or Apple and follow us on Twitter at MotionPod. You can find links to things we've just discussed on our website, preprintsinmotion.com. If you'd like to tell us what you think, then send an email, shout at us on Twitter, or shout at us if you see us walking down the street. This has been a JMJ production, generously supported by our friends at ASAP Bio. Until next time, have a good week. Where do I find out about the different bioarchived licenses? This CC, BY, CDXY nonsense is driving me nuts. ASAP Bio have a resource for that. Ugh, that's your answer to everything. That's because they have everything you need to know about preprints. Sure, they probably have the basics, like info on the preprint service, but what else is there? There's so much more. Looking to post a preprint, but not sure what different journal policies are? They have a collection to help you out with that. There are meetings around preprints and associated services. If you want to know how preprint adoption has changed over time, there's even a page on that. And COVID? They have a big section on preprints and the pandemic, plus some really cool infographics for communicating preprints. And university policies? Surely they don't have that. They collect uni policies where possible. Okay, okay, they do sound pretty impressive, but is it not a bit of an echo chamber? It can be, but ASAP Bio also engage with people who don't love preprints and have concerns. So we had an excellent discussion on this very topic a couple of months ago. Oh, is there anything ASAP Bio don't do? Honestly, no, they're so nice over there. They were so quick to jump in and support this show. It's your one-stop shop for info on preprints and open science initiatives. So head over to asapbio.org to learn more and subscribe to their newsletter for the latest in preprint news. If you want a deeper dive into the world of preprints, then look out for the next recruitment of ASAP Bio Fellows.